1611, which many of our fathers and grandfathers used, uh, did not make much of a distinction in those two uses. But more modern translations have tried to separate them for our understanding. The word can be used to talk about outward difficulties we face. These would be those kinds of things that we can't help, but that press heavily upon us. These are the things that test us, try us, prove us. And they may relate to suffering or sickness, or the loss of loved ones, or the rupture of relationships, all other kinds of difficulties that we could endure in this life. And James 1 does deal with those in verses 2 through 4 and verse 12. Um, The New King James is not as consistent as it should be, although it is the preferred translation that I use, because in verse 12, the same word that is translated trials in verse 2 is translated temptation in verse 12. And I don't believe that it is temptation. I believe it is trials, just like in verse 2. The second way that the word is used is the one we're more familiar with, I guess, and that is those inner desires that we have that sometimes result in us sinning against God. Um, I'm going to try to remember to, to show that I think there could be a connection between verses 12 and 13, even though I believe that James is talking about two different things. Um, and, and maybe I best do it now instead of waiting until later. I, I mentioned to you in that first lesson that when James says blessed, in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. That's one, of the, that, that's one of the keys to telling you this is probably trials. Because I don't think James would have talked about us enduring temptation as much as Resisting temptation. Blessed is the man who resists temptation. We, we don't really endure temptations. We resist them. We endure trials. And then James says, For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then, of course, you get into the next verse when he's talking about temptation. And what's the connection? Possibly. I think the connection is that sometimes trials lead to temptations. We're sick. We don't understand why we're sick. And we may be tempted to say, God is doing this to me. God is punishing me by making me sick. That becomes a temptation. So a trial turns into a temptation. Uh, other other ways you could apply that. But, but it's the second use of the word that we're going to deal with today, and that is the word temptation in the sense of inner desires 
that can sometimes lead us to do wrong. We're just going to talk about a couple of verses, verses 13 through 16 primarily, but let, let me read them for you and you follow along in your Bible. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. When you read those verses, uh, as the original readers read them, probably a number of questions could come to mind. We might ask, where does temptation originate? Where does it come from? What's its source? Secondly, we might ask, who, where do we place the blame for giving in to temptation? Is that our fault, or is that God's fault, or whose fault is it? And thirdly, what results can we expect if we give in to temptation? And this one's not on your outline, but certainly I should have put it there, because it's a question that we would want to ask, and that is what rewards come by overcoming temptation and not giving in to it? If we see the negative side, what happens to us if we give in? We ought to also see the positive side. What happens if we beat temptation, if we overcome it? And I think that's what James is trying to help us to do, to overcome it. Okay, here's some possible answers to question one. Question one was, what, where does temptation originate? What's its source? What could we possibly think? Well, James in verse 13 and 14 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. That's one possible answer. What's the source of temptation? God is. And, and, and some make the mistake of faulting God for, giving in, for having temptation and giving in to temptation. This obviously is a very old practice, and we've talked about this many times, and for some of you it's uh, pretty redundant, but uh, maybe we need to think about it again. Start in the book of Genesis. Very first people. God told them one thing, don't eat, one negative, don't eat of this tree in the midst of the garden. And so Satan comes and he says, you know, as God said you're going to die if you eat, nah, that's not true, and make you wise. And Eve looks at that tree and desires the fruit and wants to have it and knows, at least she thinks she knows it's going to make her wise. And so she eats. She gives to Adam and he eats. And when God questions them in Genesis 3, if you'll note, in, in the third chapter of Genesis, God questions them. And he says in verse 11, the second part of verse 11, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Here's man's response. The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. 
I'm not guilty. It's this woman who gave it to me. And after all, God, you gave me this woman. Therefore, indirectly, you're at fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, she wouldn't have given me the fruit. I would not have eaten. Therefore, it's your fault. Her fault, your fault. Then, if that's not bad enough, God in verse 13 said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Oh God, don't blame me. This serpent, which was in reality the devil, this serpent gave me the fruit and I ate it. <laughs> like she couldn't have said no. No, thank you. Well, later in the wilderness, uh, you remember the story of, of Aaron in chapter 32 of Exodus? Chapter 32 of Exodus. Moses goes up on the Mount of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the law. And there is a noise in the camp, and uh, it's the noise of reveling, <laughs> and not just in the nicest sense. And, and the people are reveling because a golden calf has been made. That's interesting that a calf, a bull calf, was worshipped by the Egyptians. They had been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. And a lot of times it's unfortunate that we, as well as they, adopt the thinking of society in which we live instead of resisting that thinking. They worship a calf. Now we're going to worship a calf. How did that calf come? Well, God didn't provide it. If you look at chapter 32 and beginning at verse uh, 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? In other words, uh, Moses knew who it was responsible for the calf. No. Wait a minute, Nor Aaron says. Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. What's the problem? You know the people. That they are set on evil. <laughs> well, I was just dealing with these corrupt people. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know, and so on. And I said, verse 24, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire, and look what came out. <laughs> It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, if you just throw gold into a fire and something manufactured and structured comes out. That's what he said happened. It's not my fault. Evil people, they gave me the gold, I threw it in, but look what happened. Saul, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the word of God had come through the prophet, and Samuel had said in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, 
Notice how specific God is. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And they almost obeyed. Because when Samuel comes, he hears the bleeding of sheep. And he sees Agag, king who had been spared. And when Saul is questioned about this, in verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, Notice, you see how confused people can be? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did it. I did what you said. And gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. And brought back Amalek, king of the of Amalek, Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, except for the king. But the people, that's their fault, took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, best of things that should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's almost like this, isn't it? I did it, just one little exception, Agag. It's the people, they brought back these animals, but they brought them back to sacrifice to God. Obviously, not pleasing to God. And, and we could give other examples, but th this never stopped. Human beings being what they are, it's always easy to try to diffuse the blame for something and send it to someone else. Today, uh, it's very common for wrongdoers to blame, parent, blame parents. You knew what kind of home I grew up in. How, what would you expect of me? Look what my daddy was. Look what my mother was. Or, you know, I really would be a better person, but my sorry friends are always getting in my way. Uh, if you just, you know, look at the society around us. Everybody is corrupt. What could you expect of me? Well, look how terrible our government is. And then you're blaming me. Oh, the devil made me do it, Mr. Flip Wilson. And who knows what all else or who all else is blamed for their failure to do what's right. You made me do it. You made me do it. If you hadn't made me angry, I wouldn't have socked you in the nose. So therefore, it's your fault, not mine. You know, it, 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 it's sad to see people blame others. In one way, I think it's really sad to see people blame God. And that's what James deals with here. Um, people still do this today. Look, God gave me these desires, and who am I to overcome what God gave me? God gave me a temper. How do you expect me to act? You know, uh, I read, and I, I don't think I'd ever read this before, but I read that Jews in the first century often blamed God for doing wrong. And, and this is how some of those Jews reasoned. God created man. We admit that. But he also created man with the ability to sin. Therefore, God is really responsible for sin. 
If, if God had created us and made us so that we couldn't sin, then God would not be responsible for sin, but since He made us so we could, He is. Well, it won't work. It won't work. You cannot blame God because James says God does not tempt us. We need to be sure we understand the difference between testing and tempting. Because it is true that God tests us, but He does not tempt us. You see, a, a test helps to prove genuineness. If you want to make sure a product is genuine, you test it to be sure it does what it's supposed to do. But, but on, on the other side, if God tempted us, he would be helping the devil, who is his enemy. Why would God help the devil? Why would God want people to do wrong when he has so tried to help us to do right? And so James states God's holiness. God is not tempted and he does not tempt. His holiness, you see, separates him from sin. We are told in the Bible that God cannot lie. He is incapable of lying because of who he is. He is absolutely holy. You see, we struggle with that because you and I can lie. God can't. You and I can make a promise and then break it. God can't because his character is such that when he promises... He has to carry it out. That's his nature. If God tempted us, he would cease to be holy. It's interesting that uh, someone has noted that uh, this word, uh, he cannot be tempted by evil, is used only here in the Bible, and it could be translated untemptable. God is untemptable. You cannot tempt him. You could try, but you couldn't succeed. And so James would show later the true picture, not a part of our study this morning, but the true picture of God in verses 17 and 18. Look, you want to see who, what God really is? Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God isn't one way one day and one day the, one way the next day. God's always the same. He is the same now and forever. And then look at verse 18. Of his own will, his desire, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why would God tempt people to do wrong when he, of his own will, wanted to bring us forth by the gospel? Just does not make any sense. Okay, so the true answer. What's the true answer? If it's not God, then it has to be man. Man is responsible for giving in to temptation. Verse 14. Each one, each human, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We have to bear the blame. When we give in to temptation, we have to bear the blame. We cannot blame God. 
We cannot even blame the devil for putting the temptation before us. It's our fault. And that's really hard for a lot of people to do. To, to, to absolutely come to the conclusion that we ourselves control how we react to temptation. Nobody else controls that. You control it. I control it. And James gives a very impressive figure uh, to explain that. The word he uses in the Greek, in verse 14, each one is drawn away. That's one word. Or lured, some versions say. Each person is drawn away. Th that, that word originally carried the idea of drawing a fish from its place of safety. You throw your line in, and it's got a pretty worm on it, and that fish is going one way, and all of a sudden he sees that worm. He's safe when he's going the other way. He's not safe when he sees the worm, because he doesn't know there's a hook in the worm. Man is lured, but notice, by his own lust. When he is drawn away by his own desires, the New King James says, really, be better if the translation were by his own lust. Epithumia, the word that's used here, is really just desire. I mean, truthfully, in, in the meaning of the word is desire. And it's not, it's neutral. You can have good desire, you can have bad desire. Obviously here, James is talking about the wrong, a desire for something that you should not have. That's how man is lured into this, by Feeding a wrong desire. Now, in verses 14 and 15, here's the tragic result of this. Each one is tempted, drawn away by his own desire. Then, he's drawn away. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It's, uh, the illustration kind of changes from the fish to a baby. When when the baby is born, that is, when it reaches life outside the womb, it has followed a process. And, and, the, and the process is that we have let lust conceive and grow until it reaches sin. And then James says, sin brings death. What death? What is the death? Well, Romans 6, you know, says the wages of sin is death. You get paid for what you do. When you sin, you deserve the wages for what you've done. In one sense, death occurs immediately because it relates. When we think of death, we think of separation. Somebody dies physically and they are separated from life, right? They're no longer living with us. When someone sins, he is separated from God. Your sins, Isaiah says, have separated between you and your God. That's death. But that's just the first death. <laughs> then there is a second death that comes eternally if we are not forgiven, and that death is forever. The death that one experiences when he sins now can be overcome, but that second death can't be overcome. You can't pray somebody out of being lost. You can't burn candles to get them out of being lost. Once you are lost, eternally, you are lost forever. 
And James warns against being deceived. Some would separate verse 16 to make it sort of a separate thing. I think it needs to go with verse 15. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James is not. Deceit is, is uh, you know, the devil deceived Eve. He told her a lie and she believed a lie. He is a master of deception. But the worst kind of deception of all is self-deception, isn't it? When you deceive yourself, when, when you lie to yourself to say this isn't going to hurt, this isn't going to have any bad consequences, I'm not going to be responsible for this. When you lie to yourself, it's the worst lie possible. And James says, don't be deceived into thinking that you can cast off the responsibility of sin on God or anyone else. Well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? We need, we need to under, first of all, we need to understand the consequences of giving in to temptation. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit better, and, and, and maybe I didn't explain it well enough. Mark Copeland, a preacher in Florida, did this sort of like a mathematical equation, and, and that is desire plus opportunity equals temptation. In other words, if, if you have a desire, a wrong desire, and you have an opportunity to fulfill that, that's temptation. A, a lot of people don't understand temptation. Temptation is not necessarily just observing. Um, let me use a biblical example. That's the best. David saw a woman bathing. I, you know, you you can you could probably guess all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I, I've seen I've seen commentaries very critical of David saying, "What was David doing up on his roof? Why not be on his roof?" And did he know there was a woman down there bathing? I don't know. He saw a woman down there bathing. She's naked, obviously. It was not wrong for David to see her. Listen. You can open up a magazine and see a naked woman. didn't mean that you wanted to see the naked woman. But what happened was that David saw an opportunity to seize upon what he saw that had generated in him feelings that should not have been generated. And when he found out that this woman was available and brought her to him, he used his opportunity to give in to temptation. David could have seen that naked woman and turned away from her and not have done anything wrong. When you have a desire and an opportunity and you give in to it, you have sinned. In other words, temptation has won. I don't know why I thought of it. Years ago, I was working on an old car, which I had a lot of. 
in front of my house, and I don't know why I didn't have it on the driveway, I had it parked out on the street. And I had the door of it open because the door was making squeaking noises. And I had a can of WD-40. And I was going to spray the hinges and try to make it quit making noise. But for some reason, I set the can of WD-40 down by the car. And I walked back to the garage. And when I turned back around, here are two guys in a car coming down our street. And they stopped and open the door and pick up that can of WD-40 and turn around and take off. Well, they, a guy had a desire. I want that. I want that. It doesn't belong to me, but I want it. And he had an opportunity because he thought no one would see him, and so he picked it up. And yes, I foolishly followed them. And when they stopped, I said, would you steal my WD-40 for him? The guy said, we didn't steal it. And I said to him, you don't, this is part of the story you don't need. I said, look, if you need WD-40, I'll give it to you. Just don't steal it. Um, we have to understand what is temptation. Sometimes people think that just having the desire for something is temptation. Now, if it's a wrong desire you're getting in the wrong direction. But it is true, God gave us desires and he gave us uh, longings and whatever. We just have to be careful how we satisfy them. Here are five suggestions on the lesson sheet. They're on your lesson sheet. We could perhaps add others. Number one, use the power of prayer. You and I can pray for strength to overcome temptation and to have the wisdom for dealing with it when it comes to our lives. And we pray in advance. <laughs> we don't wait till we get into it and then say, oh God, help me out of this. We need to pray in, it, in advance to say, help me not to give in to temptation. And the more we are, the more familiar we are with the Bible, the easier this makes our praying and the better off we'll be. We need to take seriously what we read in the Bible about what's right and what's wrong. Too many people make light of sin and try to categorize some sins as being okay and some as being not okay. All sin is wrong. All of it. We need to be careful. Jesus used the Word of God in Matthew 4 to overcome the devil's temptation. Three times the devil tempted him. Each time the Lord answered with what God said through his word. You and I can do that too. I, I think we also consider at the same time the harmful giving, the, how harmful giving in proved to be for those in the Bible and to recognize that it won't just be harmful for them in the past, it'll be harmful for us in the present. It is, uh, it is a part of the devil's trickery to make people think this is not going to be a problem. And how many sad situations have been created when the devil has convinced people, you, you can go ahead and sin, it won't be a problem. Nobody will know. It won't hurt anybody. Number two, think of the outcome, and this is part of what I just said, of doing wrong. Not just the momentary pleasure 
or the momentary satisfaction that we often get when we do wrong. And let's face it, that's one of the reasons we do wrong. If doing wrong were always distasteful to us, we wouldn't do wrong. <laughs> but sometimes it's very appealing. This is what we desire. But we need to think about what has happened to those who do wrong and how it's going to affect us in the future. Number three, remind yourself of God's desire for us. He wants us to be holy, not unholy. And one thing you and I do not want to do, we don't want to sever our fellowship with God. And if you sin, you have severed your fellowship with God. Make up your mind ahead of time that you do not want to sin. Look, look at, uh, there's an interesting uh, verse in Job, Job 31. Job 31. If I can get my Bible to go there. And verse 1, listen to what Job says. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? And the implication is very clear. Why should I look upon a woman to lust? Because I've already made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to do that. And, and, and we need to make up our mind ahead of time. That means that we remove things that we know will be a temptation. Listen, there are certain cable stations that you should not have. Because they are filled with trash. They are filled with everything that is anti-God. And if you watch those programs, you are helping to foster that. And you are putting yourself in danger. HBO and Showtime are trash. And Christians don't need to be watching trash. But there's a lot of other shows that are not on HBO and Showtime that we just said we shouldn't be watching those. They're not good for us. Don't let your association with sinful people lead you into temptation. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us that evil companionships corrupt good morals. If you've got bad friends, you need to stop having them as friends. If your friends are the kind of people that will not help you, but will hurt you, then change your friends. And you can do it. Remember that there is a reward for those who do right. Back in verse 12, when even though we were talking about trials, that's the, the idea is obviously true. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. We might change it to say, blessed is the man who overcomes temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown. That's what you and I want, the crown of life. We don't want to go to hell, we want to go to heaven. And we've got to do right in order to go to heaven. Now let me mention a couple of other things very quickly before we run out of time. God made us with free will. And we ought to be grateful for that because that means that we decide whether we live right or not. We. I'm glad God didn't make us robots or automatic obeyers of Him. 
And that's not what he wanted. But God has done a lot to get us to understand what is right in order to help us do right. He's given us instruction. He's given us encouragement. He's given us warnings. He's given us examples. Those ought to be helpful. Now, someone might uh, argue somewhat like those ancient Jews. If God permits trials, that is difficulties, that may lead us to sin, then maybe he wants us to sin. You recognize the argument in Romans 6, don't you? The, the, some of the people were saying, you know, if grace covers sin, then we ought to sin more so we can have more grace. No, that's not the way it works. Trials can be helpful if they're handled correctly. And we need to realize that there are many people who've endured a lot of trials without turning them into temptations to sin. Temptation does not leave us where we were before the temptation. When we're tempted, we either are going to get better because we overcome it, we're going to be stronger by overcoming it, or we're going to get weaker because we give in. And if we keep on giving in to temptation and doing what's wrong, and then we're convicted because we've done wrong, we begin all of a sudden that downward cycle that says, I'm hopeless. I, I can't do right. I never will do right. And that's exactly where the devil would like to get us. Now, let me, let me mention this very quickly because we need to understand it. James does not deal with Satan's part in temptation. He doesn't mention Satan here, does he? He doesn't deal with how others can lead us into temptation. Remember, in the Old Testament, Amnon had a friend, David's son, who wound up raping his own sister. His friend is the one who led him into that. But James doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about how certain situations may be more conducive to temptation. But that really wasn't James' concern here. That's covered in other places. His concern was not allowing readers to think that they could blame God. Putting the blame right where it belongs. You know, the false gods of the Greeks and the Romans were very different when compared to the true God of heaven. The, the, the Greeks and the Romans believed in their gods, mythical gods, who were filled with lust and jealousy and hatred and cruelty, and that's not the true God. They made those gods up, and I guess they could make them anything they wanted to make them. And I would not want to close this morning without mentioning one extremely important scripture, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And verse 13, here is a message from heaven that says to you and me, no, no, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. In other words, think about it this way. First of all, if you're tempted, you're not the only one who's had this temptation. I don't care what the temptation is. You cannot be tempted with something original. It's already happened. But God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. There's a great assurance. God is not going to even allow the devil or your friends or anyone else to put a temptation before you that is absolutely more than you can deal with. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's a way. There's a way to avoid it. The problem is sometimes we don't look for the way. The way's there, but you have to look for it. You have to believe it's there. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate you coming to our class.